Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Price of Victory. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21 to 33, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Boasting in Our Weakness. Most people can't imagine someone boasting in their weaknesses. To even suggest that this is something that should be commended, well, that seems like a joke. I mean, after all, who would go into a job interview and make it about all the stuff that we weren't particularly good at? Well, then imagine that after that interview comes the next candidate who looks, you know, confident and can assert all the things that he or she is doing well. And what's clear to me who gets the job. But Paul says, that's what we did when we first got to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3 says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, I, for my part, think I understand. Paul was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He left there and went to Thessalonica, and a riot ensued. And it was a a good thing that he wasn't physically present at the home of his host when the mob showed up and wanting to drag him out. Eventually, at least by my reading of the situation, Jason, who was Paul's host, had to put up a bond guaranteeing that Paul wouldn't be back anytime soon. Then the mob followed him to Berea, and finally, he ended up in Athens, where the philosophers were, were heard to remark, I mean, what's this babbler trying to say? And after that, he showed up in Corinth. Yeah, weakness. Now, his experience was that he was unable to control the reaction that his presence had caused. And furthermore, weakness might also mean that by then, the persecution he'd suffered had taken a toll on his physical body. I'm going to have a great deal more to say about that in today's study. Uh, The other two descriptors, that he came in fear and trembling again, that also seems understandable. But this created a problem, as we have noticed. The false teachers who had later showed up in Corinth after Paul had established the church there, I mean, those false teachers definitely did not show up in weakness and fear and trembling. They showed up with strength and confidence and presented themselves as capable public speakers who could wow a crowd. We're about to read a passage which contains, in my mind, the best description Paul gives about the life he lived. You know, as I read, pay attention to the description Paul gives of the cost that his mission for the gospel has required of him. Remember also that this entire series, 2 Corinthians 8 to 13, is about the cost of following Jesus. So here we go. Let's read 2 Corinthians 11:21b to 27. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. 
Now, before we dive right in, perhaps you might understand why it is that those televangelists who have their own private jets and have multiple mansions along with other expensive toys, those teachers who proclaim that if you have the right kind of faith, you can simply speak the word and diseases are going to go away along with poverty and with the right kind of faith, all that you desire will be yours. Do you see? After reading what we've just had, how different these words are than the kind of faith the prosperity preachers teach. You know, I've mentioned before that one very popular, very prosperous teacher has written a book entitled The Power of I Am. He teaches his followers to repeat these words. I am blessed. I am prosperous. I am successful. I'm victorious. I'm talented. I'm creative. I'm wise. I'm strong. I'm wealthy and I am healthy. See, I guess the Apostle Paul just didn't get the memo. But I point this out because that teacher, you know, the one who teaches his followers to say all of that, is not at all different from the false teachers in Corinth. Those guys were blessed. And on the other hand, Paul was beaten and near death, looking emaciated and abused. And that's where we're going in today's study. What are the appropriate things we should boast in? You know, throughout our study in the latter half of 2 Corinthians, we've noticed that the church in Corinth was a difficult church. But by God's grace, revival had come to the church. Many rebellious Christians had confessed their sins, got right with God, had become reconciled with their very dear apostle, Paul, who had not only preached the gospel to them, but he'd also planted the church and established the doctrinal foundations in the truth of Jesus. And furthermore, he had been caring for them and constantly either going back there himself or sending other ministry associates there to monitor whether they were growing in the faith. But we have noticed a persistent minority in the church who continually resisted. They were attached to their false teachers. I mean, after all, from their vantage point, the false teachers were successful. And Paul had all the bearings of a loser. And they were pushing hard. Paul, they said, if you want to reestablish your leadership with us, you're going to have to prove to us that you can be the kind of leader that we would want to follow. In short, and Paul recognizes this, they want him to boast. Show us what kind of stuff you're made of. And Paul recognizes they're pushing him into a corner. So what is he to do? You know, in the very first few verses that we've read, that is, in verses 21b to 22, he appears to be complying. I'm a Hebrew, he says. I'm an Israelite, as as well as a direct descendant of Abraham. And at this point, you can almost see a number of eyebrows going up. There, finally, he's showing good leadership. You know, we in our day might miss the significance of those claims. But in the ancient Greek-speaking world, a standard topic of discussion was that good breeding was necessary for good leadership and good speaking ability. See, unlike many of us who live in North America who love to celebrate someone who comes from a rough background and beats the odds and has made it big, the ancient Greeks would have disagreed. Good breeding sets you apart, at least so they thought. There's an inscription found in an ancient synagogue from Corinth. The inscription simply said, Synagogue of the Hebrews. That is, Hebrews were known to have come from dignified and ancient people. It was a title of significance, and at the outset of his argument, Paul says, I too have titles just like that. They make me appear dignified. But then when we come to verse 23, he seems to have ratcheted this boastfulness in himself up one step further. 
He says, I'm a better servant of Jesus than are the false teachers. Now, you can hear a smattering of applause. There you go, Paul. Now you're starting to make some brownie points. And Paul is saying, you know, those men will tell you they're on a mission, but I'm telling you that my mission from Jesus is superior to theirs. And look, no doubt, Paul here might have made the case that it was Jesus who had called him while he was on the road to Damascus. See, he might here also have made the case that, you know, as he's described it to the Galatians that for three years, the risen Jesus had met with him and mentored him and given him his message and given him his mission. I mean, whatever the status of the false teachers were, none of them had as dramatic a story as Paul had. And then just when it seems he's getting warmed up, suddenly, Paul just seems to stop dead in his tracks. Notice verse 23. He says, I'm talking like a madman. You know, I can almost see everyone's head snapping around. What? No, no, Paul. You're talking like a leader now. Tell us what you got, and we're going to follow you halfway around the world. And then Paul speaks about what he has suffered, not what he's accomplished. And by the way, don't think for a moment that his accomplishments were only a few. They were not. Who had established more churches than Paul? Perhaps he should have mentioned that next. Do you see? If it comes to mentioning accomplishments, this would be the time to review them. Paul could easily make the case that there was not one man in the whole world outside of Jesus who had done so much in such a short period of time. You know, I, for my part, would love to see him recounting those accomplishments. That would finally and ultimately put this matter of who was the best leader to bed. You see, even we who read this story so many years later can find ourselves wishing that that's exactly what Paul should have done, but he doesn't. He's about to speak next, or in his words, to boast of his sufferings alongside of his weaknesses. And that leaves us with a question. Just when he had a chance to best his critics, he refuses it. And why? That will be our big question. Why doesn't he confess that he's strong and creative? Why not say, I'm prosperous, I'm talented, I'm successful, I'm wise. Why not affirm the power of I am? See, I think I know the answer. Go back to chapter 10, verse 17. You see it there? You know, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. During the month of March, we'll be highlighting the international efforts of Back to the Bible Canada. Did you know that our radio program with Dr. John airs in India and neighboring countries such as Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Eastern China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran? If ensuring that your brothers and sisters around the world have access to daily Bible teaching is important to you, you can help. Your gift toward Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would help develop and encourage pastors in India and help reach thousands of people with trusted Bible teaching programs across much of Asia and the Middle East. To support our international ministries, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Have you ever wondered what it might have been like to be the Apostle Paul? You know, the latter part of 2 Corinthians 11 is a picture of his hardships. And please don't misunderstand what Paul has written in this description. 
It's not so that we might feel sorry for him. Rather, he writes it to describe his weaknesses. He's going to be boasting about just how frail he is, how vulnerable he is, how easy it might have been to defeat and to kill him. And why does he talk this way? The answer has to be that he wants there to be no confusion in the matter. Had it not been for the Lord, he would have utterly failed. The powers of this world would have overcome him in an instant. He was unable to accomplish what the Lord had called him to do. Let's have a good look at the list that Paul gives us. He starts by talking about his far greater labors or the relentless demands of hard work. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he makes mention of the fact that the Gentile mission meant that he was required to work harder than the other apostles. They might have had greater assurance of support from Jewish believers, but taking the gospel to the Gentiles who had never heard, well, that often meant that he had to pursue his trade as a tent maker, making tents by day, preaching by night. The work was unrelenting. But then along with the hard work came the imprisonments and the countless beatings. Notice that in the next few verses, Paul is going to explain that. Verse 24 says that up to that point in his ministry, on five separate occasions, he had been beaten in the synagogues. You know, on this note, we need some explanation. According to Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 to 3, Jewish law forbade a person to receive more than 40 stripes. And the reason, so that the person receiving the punishment might not be humiliated. However, the Jewish historian Josephus points out that the floggings that were administered in synagogues had become disgraceful. Now, it's at this point that we must notice something. I think it's fascinating. For Paul to have been beaten in this way was unnecessary. Since he was a Roman citizen, he could have found a way out. However, had he chosen a way out, he would have been cut off from the Jews Or, to put it into our words, he would have been excommunicated. Later on in Romans 9, 2-4, Paul speaks of his sorrow in heart, his unceasing anguish that he felt for the Jewish people. He wanted them to be saved. So a clear picture emerges. Paul submitted to such horrifying punishment in the synagogues so that the door to Jewish evangelism would never be closed. Now, that's quite a picture, wouldn't you say? Then in verse 25, he moves beyond the beatings from the Jews to the beatings from the Gentiles. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Now again, we note that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he would have been legally protected from such treatment. But if you read Acts 16, Paul was beaten with rods in Philippi, contrary to the law, simply because of the hatred that was directed against him and because they never bothered asking him of his status. Later, when Paul describes that encounter in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, he says, I was shamefully treated in Philippi. Indeed, he was left bleeding in a dark prison without any due process. And it was against the law, and no one seemed to care, at least for a time. Three times that happened to me, says Paul. And then he adds, I was also stoned once. I think he's referring to what happened in Lystra. You can read about that in Acts 14, verse 19 there. He was left for dead. And that's what Paul meant earlier when he said that he was often at death's door. Now, from that description of his persecution, let's move now to the dangers that he endured as a result of his travels. He mentions he was shipwrecked three times and that on one occasion he had spent a 24-hour period of time in the open sea before being rescued. 
You know, more than one person has wondered about that. It doesn't seem likely that Roman vessels were going down with such alarming frequency, and in truth, they weren't. So what then accounts for such a poor track record? Well, the answer must be that Paul didn't travel first class. Given his poor financial status, he was forced to take less than seaworthy vessels. He just didn't have the money to afford safe vessels. He would have taken crowded ones that were dangerous. I remember once having a conversation with someone who worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. He said that it was often the case that to get to tribes that had no Bible in their language, their missionaries and translators were often forced to take boats that often sank. So they decided to provide their missionaries with life vests. But the missionaries complained. They said, look, I I don't know about our witness if the rest of the boat goes down and we, because we're rich, are able to survive. And so they came up with a solution at Wycliffe in order to save everyone on those leaky vessels. But you're getting a good look at Paul, aren't we? I guess no one explained to him that he was a king's kid, that he should have gotten his own private airplane. Indeed, clearly from this description, we see he had far less money than the average traveler. He needs to travel, but he can't afford safe travel. And then Paul mentions how vulnerable he was to robbers. This was especially so in the open country where historians tell us robbers dotted the countryside. The only way to get around that is to to hire private security agents. Again, I hope you're getting the picture. Next, Paul mentions that he was in danger from both Jews and Gentiles who were targeting him. They knew who he was, and no doubt there were those who would have gladly killed him when he was out traveling. No one would have been the wiser, and since Paul was aware that this was happening— You'd have to imagine that he's checking over his shoulder and also making sure he knows where the danger spots were when he traveled. And then with all of that, Paul even mentions that some who were hunting his life were also false brothers. And he doesn't elaborate there. But then with all that happening, it's hardly surprising to hear him talking about sleepless nights. And then he also mentions, given his lack of resources, that on more than one occasion, he was left without the resources even to buy food. Stop again and think about that contemporary teacher who tells his followers to repeat, I'm powerful and I'm prosperous. My response to that is horse hockey pucks. Paul knew nothing of that. Now then, you would think that nothing else could be added to this list. It sounds as difficult as it can be. And at least in my mind, that's why some thoughtless Christians in Corinth says, you know, he's not impressive in his public appearance. Well, how could he be? His body was often beaten and emaciated. So having said all of that, look at the next line found in verse 28. Paul says, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, here's what I think. If I went through all of that, I'd only be thinking about my miseries. But Paul is overwhelmed with the pressure he feels and the demands he must respond to and the difficulties that have arisen. If you go ahead to 2 Corinthians 12, 20 to 21, he fears that perhaps even after all that has transpired in Corinth, he still might find people there quarreling and in jealousy, along with all those sexual sins that had plagued them earlier. The pressure to perform in the churches, to take on the false teachers, and to make sure that everyone was growing in Christ, that didn't stop just because he had spent the last 24 hours in the open seas not knowing whether he would live or die. My dear listener, how are you doing? Do you still feel like following the obscenely rich televangelists? I hope those men are getting to be distasteful for you. 
Paul brings matters to a close, so look at verses 29 to 31. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Who is weak and I don't feel his weakness? If they're immature in their faith, I feel that deeply. If they're tempted, I enter deeply into their lives. I don't just make pronouncements about what people should be believing and doing. I enter into their lives, and by the command of Christ, I'm called to stand by their sides and bear their burdens with them. I can't say, hey, you think you got problems? Let me show you problems. Paul never says that. Rather, when people are stumbling, he knows his calling. Be there for them. Labor at their side. Show them you love them and that the power of Christ is available to them. Paul says, yes, I know. You wanted me to boast about my qualifications. I'm sorry, I won't. I'll boast about things that display how helpless I am, how hard-pressed I am, how near death I've often been. No, I'm not the person who glad hands it with the officials of the city, but rather I'm the man who showed up after a horrible ordeal with weakness and trembling, and out of such weakness, have a look around. Do you see what God did? He established a church. Paul ends in verses 32 and 33. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped at his hands. Ha <laughs> ha, that's how I roll, says Paul. It's humiliating and it's undignified, but that's my boast. I've been stripped of my dignity and Christ looks ever more precious. John, thanks so much. A great message today, but help me out. How should we boast in our weakness without presenting ourselves with some type of false humility? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, it, <laughs> it's uh, the old adage of the person who wrote the book, Humility and How I Attained It. The minute I begin thinking of my own humility, I probably lost it. I do think that C.S. Lewis was right by saying that the humble person doesn't think too highly of himself or too lowly of himself or herself, I should say, um, but but thinks um, less of themselves and more about the glory of God, the cause of Christ, uh, the good that comes from the gospel in the lives of others, and in a way loses themselves uh, in the giving of themselves. And that's what we see in Paul. That's you know why he suffered as he did. Um, that's why he endured mistreatment so that, you know, the cause of Christ and uh, the blessing that would come to the church of Jesus Christ might be enhanced. So this was not what the false teachers were doing. Uh, we need to learn the difference. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. I hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message from Dr. John Newfeld. If you've been moved, I want to encourage you to check out our website, backtothebible.ca, for today's message and messages from past series, just in case you're not able to listen to this fine station every day. Every program, article, blog, video is available on our website for free. A key goal for Back to the Bible Canada is to offer trustworthy Bible teaching without barriers. Special thanks to all those who make this possible. And remember, 
ask for your free copy of Dr. John Newfeld's CD series, The Missionary God Today, as our gift to you. To know more or to partner with Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.